Hello, I'm Pastor Nathan from River Rock Church in Belle Plaine, Minnesota. And this episode, episode, we'll be going through the ancient Christian manuscript called the Didache. Now, Didache means teaching, and it's short for the whole title, which is the Lord's teaching through the Twelve Apostles to the nations. And the Didache is perhaps the oldest Christian writing outside of the Bible. And it's basically an early church manual, because as Christians began to spread and churches were being planted, people had some very practical questions about how to do things like baptism and the Lord's Supper. They asked questions about charity and hospitality and several other things that this document will cover. Now, someone might ask, why would we spend our time looking at a document like this? And the answer is pretty simple. When we look at ourselves today and our churches today, we have many of, the, many of these same questions. And people have been asking these questions since the church began. And also since the dawn of the church, the Holy Spirit has been guiding and directing Christians as they seek to answer these questions. Now, the Didache is not scripture, and it never claims to be scripture, and so we have to remember that distinction as we go through this. But it's still a valuable tool to see how the earliest Christians sense the Holy Spirit leading them. And as we ask these same questions, and strive to be led by the same Holy Spirit today, recognizing how he has led people in the past can help us better understand how he is, he is leading us right now and in the future. Now, the Didache is divided into 14 short sections. They're called chapters, but really they're about a paragraph or two paragraphs each. And the goal today is to go through each one of those chapters with some commentary and some application for our current situation. Now, if you'd like to read along with me or you're just interested in reading it for yourself, there's many different English translations, and you can find a lot of examples of them for free online. The one that I'm using um, is from a website called newadvent.org where I got this this translation that we're going through today. Um, I'll post uh, the website in the description, and then you can check that out for yourself if you so desire. So let's pray, and then we'll look at the first chapter. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the faithful men and women who have worshipped you and followed you and sought to help one another grow deeper in their relationship with you and better understand how we should act and live at the church in a, a world that continually faces different difficulties and challenges. Lord, I ask that as we read the Didache, you'll be speaking to us, that you will bring to mind the truths of your word, that this will be a tool that will point us uh, to a deeper relationship with you, a greater knowledge of you, and a heavier reliance on the power of your word and the Holy Spirit. We ask that in all things, your name will be glorified and your will would be done. In Jesus' name, amen. So chapter one is entitled, The Two Ways, The First Commandment. There are two ways, one of life and one of death, but a great difference between the two ways. The way of life then is this. First, you shall love God who made you. Second, your neighbor as yourself. And all things whatsoever you would should not occur to you, do not also do to another. So as the Didache describes these two ways, the way of life and the way of death, it begins by describing the way of life, and it does so by paraphrasing some of Jesus' teachings. Now what's fascinating here is that as we read it, it begins with Jesus' teaching about the greatest commandment, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And it paraphrases that, but it's still pretty recognizable in the way that they wrote it. But it includes this second part to loving your neighbor as yourself, basically in the negative. Um, It says, let me scroll up here quick. 
And all, all things whatsoever you would should not occur to you, do not also do to another. Now that may sound a little wooden or a little broken, and I think that's just because the translator was trying to remain faithful to what the original language said, which makes it a little bit more difficult for us to understand. But basically what it was saying is, whatever you wouldn't want done to you, you shouldn't do to someone else. And basically it's just restating that command, love your neighbor as yourself in the negative. And at least for me, this has been a helpful way of thinking about it because it's a simple command, love your neighbor as yourself. But when we think about how that should be practically lived out in our lives, having that alternate view, like, you know, I want to love my neighbor as myself. And part of that means not treating them in a way that I would not want myself to be treated. And this helps me practically live out this commandment. It continues on. And of these things, and of these sayings, the teaching is this, bless those who curse you and pray for your enemies and fast for those who persecute you. For what, what reward is there if you love those who love you? Do not also the Gentiles do the same, but love those who hate you and you, you shall not have an enemy. Abstain from fleshly and worldly lusts. If anyone gives you a blow upon your right cheek, turn to him the other also, and you shall be perfect. If anyone impresses you for one mile, go with him too. If someone takes away your cloak, give him also your coat. If someone takes from you what is yours, ask it not back, for indeed you are not able. Give to everyone that asks you, and ask it not back. But the Father wills that to all should be given of our blessings, in parentheses it says free gifts. Happy is he that gives according to the commandment, for he is guiltless. Woe to him that receives, for if one having need receives, he is guiltless. But he that receives not having need shall pay the penalty. Why he received, and for what, and coming into straits, he shall be examined concerning the things which he has done, and he shall not escape, thence he pay back the last farthing. Matthew 5.26 But also now concerning this, it has been said, Let your alms sweat in your hands until you know to whom you should give. Now here the Didache addresses a very practical problem that many Christians face, but especially Christians at this time were facing. Because they were really known for their hospitality and their generosity and the fact that, you know, if you were in the Christian community, if you were part of the church, or even if you just knew a bunch of Christians um, and you were in need, people would give freely out of what they had. And people quickly caught on to this and tried to take advantage of that. And I can say that having been a pastor for some time now, uh, this is an ex- uh, experience that we have as well. Now, I think if you're in church leadership, you probably see it a little bit more. Um, but there's different ways that we experience this. One of the ways that I experience it is that, you know, every year I get dozens of people calling asking for money. And a lot of times, you know, they'll be calling from different areas and they'll have sad stories and they'll, they'll be in hardship. And your heart goes out to them and you want to give them money. But the thing is, everything that we've been given, and especially if it's something that's been given to the church, like a benevolence fund or something, that's all money that should be go to glorify God. And so we do have to be wise about how we spend it and who we give charity to. Unfortunately, the vast majority of people who call and ask for help, we found out have been trying to trick us into getting money for drugs or alcohol or something like that. And for this reason, um, when we can help someone, I never give anyone cash. Instead, I'll do gift cards. Like let's say they need groceries or they need gas. I'll give them a gas card or I'll give them a grocery card. Or if they need a bill to be paid and we're able to help them with that, we'll just call and pay the bill directly for them. And this is a few things. This helps protect us from kind of, be, kind of being fooled. And 
if we are fooled and we go and have to testify that testify about that before Christ, you know, I'd rather be guilty for being too generous and getting tricked too often than never meeting the need of anyone that I was called to meet the need for. Um, but we'd still need to be wise because this is the resources that we've been blessed with are resources that should be dedicated to God and be used for his purposes. One other note, especially if you're in church leadership, um, is it's good to be connected to the police department and other resources in the community for two reasons. One, if someone kind of makes a habit of scamming people, usually the police department will know. And so you can kind of, they won't give you a ton of information because they have to protect their privacy, but they will kind of let you know, hey, you know, check this person out a little bit more or, you know, thanks for letting us know, we'll put it on file and that could help somebody in the future. The other is that there's a lot of times that people will reach out with ongoing needs where they have, you know, they're hit hard times and they need continued financial assistance or they need something else like that. And most churches are not equipped to provide that. And so by knowing what programs are in your area, what different charities and churches and um, government things have to offer, you can help point them in that direction. And a lot of times that can give them um, the leg up that they need uh, that in many cases we're not able to provide. Now, one line that's maybe a little shocking is when it says, woe to him that receives. And as it clarifies later, so if somebody receives and they're in need, there's no guilt there, right? They don't need to, there's not woe to them. But the reason that it says that is because there's very little risk of sinning when you're a giver, right? If you give charity, really the worst thing that can happen is you get fooled. Um, but somebody who's receiving and they're not in need or they're just trying to exploit somebody's generosity or something, there's a big risk for sin there, right? So when we're giving, there's less room for sin to creep in and poison our action and our motives. But when we're receiving, there's much more room for that to happen. And that's why it says, woe to him that receives, because um, since there is the higher probability of sin creeping in, they need to be mindful of that, because one day we will all have to give an account before God for the things we did and the things we didn't do. Chapter 2 is entitled, The Second Commandment, Gross Sin Forbidden. And this is still talking about the way of life. It says, in the second commandment of the teaching, you shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery, Exodus 20, 13 through 14. You shall not commit pedestry, which means homosexual activity between a man and a boy. You shall not commit fornication. You shall not steal, Exodus 20, 15. You shall not practice magic. You shall not practice witchcraft. You shall not murder a child by abortion, nor kill that which is begotten. Now, believe it or not, abortion and infanticide are not new issues. Um, there were common practices that, during this time, and from even the very earliest Christian documents we have, um, it's forbidden as a sin, abortion and infanticide. You shall not covet the things of your neighbor, Exodus twenty seventeen. You shall not forswear yourself, meaning basically perjury or making yourself a liar, Matthew five thirty four. You shall not bear false witness, Exodus twenty sixteen. You shall not speak evil. You shall bear no grudge. You shall not be double-minded nor double-tongued, for to be double-tongued is a snare of death. Your speech shall not be false nor empty, but fulfilled by deed. And this is one thing that I think many people struggle with, and at least I know I've struggled with in the past, where it's tempting to basically tell people what we want them to hear or put on some face or make ourselves seem like somebody who's more important or different than who we really are in order to win other people's approval. But what the Didache is telling us is that as Christians, we should ensure that what we say 
is backed up by your actions, that there's not a disagreement between those two things. You shall not be covetous. You shall not be rapacious, which means greedy, nor hypocrite, nor evilly disposed, nor haughty. You shall not take evil counsel against your neighbor. You shall not hate any man, but some you shall reprove, and concerning some you shall pray, and some you shall love more than your own life. And that's the end of the chapter three. And I like how this chapter ends because um, while we shouldn't hate anyone, there is a difference in our duty and our relationship to a lot of different people. And when we're loving people correctly, sometimes that means that we need to lovingly correct them. Sometimes that means that we're in a position where we should just be spending more time praying for them. And some people got us placed into our lives for us to love them more than even our own lives. And I like that it makes this distinction because it does offer some clarity. You know, I know people who have struggled with the idea of like, oh, you know, I, I don't love everybody in the world the same. And what the Didache is recognizing that, yeah, you know, you can't love everyone in the world the same. You don't even know everybody in the world, but you can treat everyone with love. And you can love them in the best way possible in accordance with your relationship with them and your station in life. Chapter three is entitled, Other Sins Forbidden. My child, free from every evil thing and from every likeness of it. So here the Didache, when it says every likeness of it, is going to start talking about things that may seem small in the beginning, but if they go unchecked, will fester into inside us and grow into greater evils. Be not prone to anger, for anger leads the way to murder. Neither jealous, nor quarrelsome, nor of hot temper, for out of all these murders are engendered. My child, be not a lustful one, for lust leads to fornication. Neither a filthy talker, nor of lofty eye, for out of all these adulteries are engendered. My child, be not an observer of omens, since it leads the way to idolatry. Neither an enchanter, nor an astrologer, nor a purifier. Nor be willing to look at these things, for out of all these, idolatry is engendered. Now, all of these are relevant to us because we all deal with anger and we all deal with lust. Um, but I, I really, um, I think it's relevant that it talks about observing omens and astrologers and purifiers and things. Because today, many people describe themselves as spiritual but not religious. And even many people who would claim the name of Christian upon themselves um, you know, have become disenchanted with the church and they kind of just practice their own thing and they still would describe themselves as more spiritual than religious. And what you end up seeing is that there's a great willingness to kind of mix in Christianity and the Christian faith with other superstitions like horoscopes or psychics or, you know, other new age practices with the thought that, you know, it's really not that big a deal, right? It's just messing around with things. It's just a spiritual practice. Um, but ultimately, these can all lead to idolatry. It continues on. My child, be not a liar, since a lie leads the way to theft. Neither money-loving nor vainglorious, for out of all these thefts are engendered. My child, be not a murmurer, since it leads the way to blasphemy. Neither self-willed nor evil-minded, for out of all these blasphemies are engendered. But be meek, since the meek shall inherit the earth. Matthew 5, 5. Be long-suffering and pitiful and guileless and gentle and good and always trembling at the words which you have heard. You shall not exalt yourself, Luke 18, 14, nor give overconfidence to your soul. Your soul shall not be joined with lofty ones, but with just and lowly ones shall have its intercourse. The workings that befall you receive as good, knowing that apart from God, nothing comes to pass. Chapter four is called Various Precepts. And remember, this is still all talking about the way of life, describing the way of life. 
My child, him that speaks to you the word of God, remember night and day, and you shall honor him as the Lord. For in the place whence lordly rule is uttered, there is the Lord. And you shall seek out day by day the faces of the saints, in order that you, they, you may rest upon their words. You shall not long for division, but shall bring those who contend to peace. Now, I read some things online where people were kind of frustrated with the fact that it says that you should honor those who are, you know, speak the word of the Lord or always seeking out day by day the faces of the saints. And it seemed like they're more reacting to uh, what you see sometimes in Roman Catholicism where, you know, saints and people of the past are elevated to almost a divine status. Um, But here it's not talking about that. It's really talking about one of the benefits we have and one of the greatest things we experience if we're in a healthy church, which is getting to learn from and be encouraged by other Christians. Now, people have said to me, you know, I don't need to go to church to be a Christian. And, you know, that's true, right? Um, It's about your relationship with God. Um, But saying that is basically like saying, you know, a fish doesn't need to be in water to be a fish. And it's true. A fish outside of water is still a fish, but it's much more healthy and free and able to be the fish that it was made to be when in a healthy body of water. Now, likewise, we don't need to be in a church to follow Christ, but Christ has established his church for, the, for our benefit. And a healthy church challenges us where we need to be challenged and encourages us when we need to be encouraged. And I've talked to people who I said this to, and they say, well, this happened to me in this church, and this happened to me in that church. And my heart goes out to them. But I'm not saying any church is better than no church. I'm saying a good, healthy, sound, biblically-based Orthodox church is definitely better than no church. And um, there's plenty of churches out there that are like that. So, You shall judge righteously. You shall not respect persons in reproving for transgressions. You shall not be undecided, whether it shall be or no. Be not a stretcher forth of the hands to receive and a drawer of them back to give. If you have anything, through your hands you shall give ransom for your sins. You shall not hesitate to give, nor murmur when you give, for you shall know who is the good repayer of the hire. You shall not turn away from him that is in want, but you shall share all things with your brother, and shall not say that they are your own. For if you are partakers in that which is immortal, how much more in things which are mortal? And this is basically saying um, what it said already is that we should be, we should give freely out of what God has blessed us with, knowing that it's not our own, knowing that God sees what we're doing and he honors it. Um, and also, if we're normally in a position where we need to receive, when we are in the position to give, we should quickly move to that different mode of being where we're giving. Um, and it says, if you are partakers in that which is immortal, right? If we've been given these great promises in Christ for all part of the body of Christ, how much more in things that are mortal? You know, if we claim unity in Christ, we've received these great promises from him. We look forward to expending eternity with each other and in his presence. Um, we shouldn't hesitate to bless people here on earth which, with, with that which is mortal. You shall not remove your hand from your son or from your daughter, but from their youth shall teach them the fear of God. Ephesians 6.4 You shall not enjoin anything in your bitterness upon your bondman or maidservant, who hope in the same God, lest ever they shall fear not God who is, who is over both. This is talking about, um, it says bondservant and maidservant, so if this is somebody who um, works under you or serves under you, um, you shouldn't put additional labors upon them out of bitterness or out of spite, because ultimately we all serve the same God. Ephesians 6, 9, Colossians 4, 1. For he comes not to call according to the outward appearance, but unto them whom the Spirit has prepared. 
and you bondmen shall not be subject to your masters as to a type of God, in modesty and fear. Ephesians 6, 5, Colossians 3, 22. You shall hate all hypocrisy and everything which is not pleasing to the Lord. Forsake in no way the commandments of the Lord, but you shall keep what you have received, neither adding thereto nor taking therefrom. Deuteronomy 12, 32. In the church you shall acknowledge your transgressions, and you shall not come near for your prayer with an evil conscience. This is the way of life. Now in chapter 5, it's going to talk about the way of death. And the way of death is this. First of all, it is evil and full of curse, murders, adulteries, lusts, fornications, thefts, idolatries, magic arts, witchcrafts, rapines, false witnessings, hypocrisies, double-heartedness, deceit, haughtiness, depravity, self-will, greediness, filthy talking, jealousy, overconfidence, loftiness, boastfulness, persecutors of good, of the good, hating truth, loving a lie, not knowing a reward for righteousness, not cleaving to good nor to righteous judgment, watching not for that which is good, but for that which is evil, from whom meekness and endurance are far, loving vanities, pursuing requital, not pitying a poor man, nor laboring for the afflicted, not knowing him that made them, murderers of children, destroyers of the handiwork of God, turning away from him that is in want, afflicting him that is distressed, advocates of the rich, lawless judges of the poor, utter sinners. He delivered children from all these. The way that the Didache presents new life in Christ is through this analogy, the way of life and the way of death. And when you compare these two, it just kind of strikes you with, um, you know, we're, we're called to live in a specific way because it honors God, because it brings us closer to him. But also God wants us to live in that way because that's the way we were intended and created to live. And so after this long list of these sins and these depravities and these evils that help define the way of death, it gives this re- like plea for repentance. It says, be delivered children from all these. Now, in chapter 6, it's going to get into some other things, and some of these things are things specifically that um, the church at that time were facing that maybe we don't face quite as much. So in chapter 6, it says, Against false teachers and food offered to idols. See that no one cause you to err from this way of teaching, since apart from God it teaches you. For if you are able to bear all the yoke of the Lord, you will be perfect. But if you are not able, what are you able to do? And concerning food, bear what you are able, but against that which is sacrificed to idols, be exceedingly on your guard, for it is the service of dead gods. So this was a common struggle that um, Christians who lived in pagan cultures had at the time. Because when people would sacrifice food in the temples, the meat, um, oftentimes it's in meat in First Corinthians, it talks about meat a lot, um, that food was then sold in the markets. Or people who went to worship there would bring sacrifices and then come back with meat. So especially for Christians who were trying to evangelize the people in the area, or maybe they had friends who were pagan, they had to be really careful when they went over to eat there um, because it could create a confusion in the gospel and the person's faith when they're like, oh yeah, this food was sacrificed to idols and they're sitting there eating with them. And so this is something that we don't face quite as much today. There are applications that we can take from it, but this is much more of a, a practical thing that Christians who lived in pagan cultures were facing. So now the Didache is going to switch and start talking about how to properly do things in the church, like baptism, fasting, the Lord's Supper, and the Lord's Prayer. So in chapter 7, it says, Concerning baptism. And concerning baptism, baptize this way, having first said all these things, so talking about what it's top of already, baptize them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, 
Matthew 28, 19. It says, in living water. Living water means basically cool running water. And what's envisioned here is like a river or a stream. But if you have not living water, baptize into other water. And if you cannot, in cold, in warm. But if you have not either, pour out water three times upon the head into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now today, very few churches in America have a limit in how much water they can have, right? You can bring in a tub or you can go to a lake or you can go to a pool or something. And so in a lot of churches, the manner in which someone baptizes is very particular, right? Christian will separate from other Christians because one believes in baptism by immersion, another believes in pouring. You know, one believes in one dunk, one believes in three dunks. But the Didache takes a very practical approach. So the preferred methods that it gives is baptizing them full immersion in cool water, running water and immersing them three times in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in accordance with Matthew 28. Now, I, when I baptize two, I baptize three times. I dunk them three times, once in the name of the Father, once in the name of the Son, once in the name of the Holy Spirit. And the reason that I do this is because in the earliest accounts of how early Christians baptized, that's how they did it. Um, and so I want to continue in the faith that I've received. And there seems to be a question in scripture where it doesn't necessarily say you have to baptize this way or this way as far as how many dunks or something. Um, and also it's a beautiful picture of the Trinity, right? Because they're dunked in the water three times, but it's one baptism, right? They're baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, but it's one baptism, one God. And so the, by dunking three times, it creates a visual image of the triune God in whom we're baptizing the person. So that's why I do it. I know that people do different things, but um, I just wanted to explain that a little bit. But if running water is not practical, but then it says, but if running water is not practical, then the data key instructs us to use still water, like a pond or a lake. And if cool water is not available, then use warm water. And it says, worse comes to worse, if you don't have a lot of water, and somebody wants to be baptized, um, pour it over their head three times. And then instructs us, but before the baptize, baptism, before the baptism, let the baptizer fast and the baptized and whatever others can. But you shall order the baptized to fast one or two days before. So what it's saying here is that the person who's doing the baptism and the person who's being baptized, beforehand they should fast, right? This is a monumental moment in their relationship with God and in the life of the church. And then it basically invites anybody who wants to to baptize with them. But it says, you know, they for sure instruct the person who is being baptized to fast one or two days. And this is really where Lent began, or this is where many people think Lent began, because um, Easter was a big Sunday for baptisms. You know, people would be instructed throughout the year, and then when it came to Easter, they'd do the baptism. And the, those who were being baptized and the baptizers were all, would always fast before this. And it ended up getting stretched out and more people in the church started participating and eventually came the practice of Lent leading up to Easter, um, connected with Christ's um, temptation in the desert. Chapter 8 is entitled, Concerning Fasting and Prayer, and in parentheses it says the Lord's Prayer. But let not your fasts be with the hypocrites. Now, hypocrites was a term that's used in the Didache and many early Christian writings that's referring to the Jewish people who didn't follow after Christ. And it's not calling them hypocrites in the same way that we would think of. Uh, we usually think of that as somebody who preaches one thing and lives their life in a different way. Um, what, how they're using it is more 
somebody who believes in a false hope or a false religion. So, but not, but let not your fast be with the hypocrites, Matthew six sixteen. For they fast on the second and fifth day of the week, but fast on the fourth day and the preparation, which is Friday. Neither pray as the hypocrites, but as the Lord commanded in his gospel. Thus pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, as in heaven, so on earth. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debt, as we also forgive our debtors. And bring us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the power and the glory forever, thrice in the day, thus pray. So the Didache recommends that we fast on Wednesday and Friday. And then it recommends that we say the Lord's Prayer three times a day. Now, one of the interesting things here is that this includes the addition of the doxology. The doxology is the part at the end of the Lord's Prayer that says, For yours is the power and the glory forever. And oftentimes we'll say, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And one of the reasons for this addition, you read it in some other early church writings, is that many services would end with the Lord's Prayer. And so if you were praying, it says, but deliver us from the evil one or deliver us from evil. Um, the last word in your service and in your prayer time together would be the word evil. And they really didn't want, like that. They didn't think that was great to end on. So they started adding the doxology and very early on in church history. Chapter nine is entitled the Thanksgiving and in parentheses, it says Eucharist. So this is me talking about the Lord's Supper. Um, and the reason that says Thanksgiving in parentheses Eucharist is because Eucharist um, just means Thanksgiving. So oftentimes it was called the Thanksgiving or the Eucharist. Now concerning the Thanksgiving, thus give thanks. First concerning the cup, we thank you, our Father, for the holy vine of David, your servant, which you made known to us through Jesus, your servant. To you be the glory forever. And concerning the broken bread, we thank you, our Father, for the life and knowledge which you have made known to us through Jesus, your servant. To you be the glory forever. Even as this broken bed was scattered over the hills and was gathered together and became one, so let your church be gathered together from the ends of the earth into your kingdom. For yours is the glory and the power through Jesus Christ forever. So it gives us two example prayers, a prayer to say when we partake of the, the cup and a prayer to say when we partake of the bread. Then it says, but let no one eat or drink of, of your thanksgiving, but they who have been baptized in the name of the Lord. For concerning those also the Lord has said, give not that which is holy to the dogs. Matthew 7, 6. <coughs> and here we see instruction that people should be able to come and take communion, but the ones who do should be baptized already. And this is something that, you know, some people have an issue with because they say, you know, if I have a relationship with Jesus, if I have accepted into my heart, why can't I just partake of communion? You know, isn't that something that's a celebration for Christians? And I am a Christian, so why can't I take partake in communion? Why do I have to be baptized first? And baptism, one of the functions that it serves, first, it's a command of Christ. So we should be ready and excited if we believe in Jesus to obey that command. But also, it's a physical act, a physical representation of a spiritual grace. And it's a definitive statement to the church that you have made, that you now have this relationship in Christ, right? That you've received this grace from Christ. And in our culture today, it's not seen as that big of a deal, at least in a lot of churches, but in many places around the world. And at this time, it really was seen as almost your wedding vows, right? So when you get married, walking up or leading up to the wedding day, I assume that in most cases, anyways, in a healthy relationship, you love the person. You want to be with the person forever. Your heart is already committed to the person, right? Um, 
But it's that vow, that public proclamation, that public representation of the thing that you guys have together that really seals the deal, right? That like makes it official. Now, baptism in no way saves you, but baptism itself is kind of like that wedding vow thing, right? God has already done the work inside of you. And then you give this physical public proclamation. You seal the deal, not between you and Jesus necessarily, but between you and the community. You say, I believe in Jesus. And in accordance with that, I'm going to take the step of obedience. That's something that's interesting when we look ahead back where there's that teaching about baptism because it, it instructs us to fast for, you know, two days before. And this is one of the evidences in the early church that while there were some places that were doing infant baptism, um, believers baptism was the common practice at the time in the majority of the church. Um, because you wouldn't expect an infant who's, you know, only a few weeks old to fast for two days straight in order to receive baptism. Chapter 10, it talks about prayer after communion. So we saw prayers before we take communion, now prayers after communion in chapter 10. But after you are filled, thus give thanks. We thank you, Holy Father, for your holy name, which you caused to tabernacle in our hearts, and for the knowledge and faith and immortality, which you made known to us through Jesus, your servant. To you be the glory forever. You, Master Almighty, created all things for your name's sake. You gave food and drink to men for enjoyment, that they might give thanks to you. But to us, you freely give spiritual food and drink and life eternal through your servant. Before all things, we thank you that you are mighty. To you be the glory forever. Remember, Lord, your church to deliver it from all evil and to make it perfect in your love and gather it from the four winds sanctified for your kingdom, which you have prepared for it. For yours is the power and glory forever. Let grace come and let this world pass away. Hosanna to the God, son of David. If anyone is holy, let him come. If anyone is not so, let him repent. Maranatha, which means the Lord come. Amen. But permit the prophets to make thanksgiving as much as they desire. That's a really beautiful prayer. Um, like I said, there are places where it seems a little broken just because of the translation. But that's a really beautiful prayer after communion that thanks God for the blessings we've received in Christ and has this hopeful look for the one day when Christ's body, his church, will be fully united, will be with him in the presence of God that will be in his kingdom. And it's a very, you know, trying to connect the dots between Christ's sacrifice, what we're doing right now, and our eternal hope in God. Chapter 11 is entitled, Concerning Teachers, Apostles, and Prophets. Whosoever therefore comes and teaches you all these things that have been said before, receive him. But if the teacher himself turn and teach another doctrine to the destruction of this, hear him not. So this was something that the early church faced a lot, was a lot of traveling teachers, apostles, and prophets. And they'd come and speak in different communities. And as we'll see, there's different issues that they ran into as well. But one of them is that they may come and teach a false doctrine. So it says if somebody comes and they believe that they have a message that God has called them to share with you, hear them out, receive them, let them speak. But if they speak something that is not true doctrine, something not in accordance with the truth of the gospel, don't hear them out. Get, let them go, get rid of them, um, because they're not really doing what they've said that they're, they're doing, and they're not honoring God. But if he teaches so as to increase righteousness and the knowledge of the Lord, receive him as the Lord. But concerning the apostles and prophets, according to the decree of the gospel, thus do. Let every apostle that comes to you be received as a Lord, but he shall not remain except one day. But if there be need also, next, but if he remain three days, he is a false prophet. 
So, like I said, there was a lot of people traveling around, and it says, you know, if somebody comes and they teach false doctrine, get rid of them right away. But if somebody comes and they have a life of righteousness and they're preaching the truth of the gospel, then receive them. Let them join in the community of the church. Let them share the message that God's placed on their heart. But don't let them stay for more than one or two days. And the reason given for this is, or the reason of this is because people, like I said, were taking advantage of the hospitality and generosity of Christians. And so somebody is there remaining, sticking around, basically just being fed and receiving housing, and they've already said their message. It it reveals a few things. One, they aren't eager to go about the mission that they believe God has placed so heavily upon their heart, and also that they're kind of trying to soak up everything that you have to give them. It continues, and when the apostles go away, let him take nothing but bread until he lodges. So basically care for his needs, give him enough stuff that he needs so that he can continue on his mission, but not enough to get rich, right? You're not trying to stuff this guy's pocketbooks. You're just trying to support the mission. But if he asks for money, he is a false prophet. And every prophet that speaks in the spirit, you shall neither try nor judge, for every sin shall be forgiven. But this sin shall not be forgiven. But not everyone that speaks in the spirit is a prophet, but only if he hold the ways of the Lord. So it's saying when people come and they're speaking the word of the Lord, you know, Meet them with initial trust, right? Don't just question everything and be suspicious of everything. But you should be cautious, right? You should examine their way of life. And if it doesn't match up with what they're saying, right, with the ways of the Lord, then they're not a true prophet. Therefore, from their ways shall the false prophet and the prophet be known. And every prophet who orders a meal in the spirit eats not from it, except indeed he be a false prophet. And every prophet who teaches the truth, if he do not, do not what he teaches is a false prophet. And every prophet proved true, working unto the mystery of the church in the world, yet not teaching others to do what he himself does, shall not be judged among you. For with God he has his judgment. For so did also the ancient prophets. But whoever says in the spirit, give me money, or something else, you shall not listen to him. But if he says to you, give for others, sake who are in need, let no one judge him. Now, we don't have a lot of traveling prophets coming to our homes and our churches. But we do have a lot of people who put their stuff online or put their stuff on TV, you know, televangelists or television preachers, and people who go from rally to rally. And basically what they're saying, if they're preaching the true gospel, let them do it, right? Support their ministry um, if you're able, but just enough to continue on with the ministry. You should never see a pastor demanding money for themselves or demanding special treatment, right? It, you should never see people getting rich off preaching the gospel. What the Didache says, if that happens, cast them out, get rid of them, right? Support the ministry, support the truth, but don't let people exploit the church and exploit exploit Christians' generosity and hospitality in order to benefit themselves. Chapter 12 is entitled, The Reception of Christians. But let everyone that comes in the name of the Lord be received, and afterward you shall prove and know him, for you shall have understanding right and left. If he comes is if he who comes is a wayfarer, assist him as far as you are able, but he shall not remain with you except for two or three days, if need be. But if he wills to abide with you, being an artisan, let him work and eat. Second Thessalonians three ten. But if he has no trade, according to your understanding, see to it that as a Christian he shall not live with you idle. But if he wills not to do, he is a Christ monger. Watch that you keep aloof from such. So what did, the Didache has been describing is a church in which people are generous and hospitable and share with one another. But the danger to that is that if somebody comes in 
and has no interest in contributing or trying, or they're trying to take advantage of people, that really ruins the whole thing, right? I think that's why one of the reasons we see so little trust in our society today is because a lot of these people who exploit other people have been exposed. We know about these scams and the ways that people try to feed on people who are generous or hospitable. And so this is trying to protect against that, right? It's not trying to say we're never going to help anyone, but it's saying, hey, let's give them what they need, but nothing more, right? Let's give them what they need, but if they're not willing to work, if they just want to sit and exploit people, cast them out of the community. Chapter 13 is called Support of Prophets. But every true prophet that wills to abide among you is worthy of his support. So also a true preacher is himself worthy as the workman of his support. Matthew 10.10, Luke 10.7. Every first fruit, therefore, of the products of winepress and threshing floor of oxen and sheep, you shall take and give to the prophets, for they are your high priests. But if you're not a prophet, give it to the poor. If you make a batch of dough, take the first fruit and give according to the commandment. So also, when you open a jar of wine or oil, take the first fruit and give it to the prophets. Out of money, silver, clothing, and every possession, take the first fruit, as it may seem good to you, and give according to the commandment. So it gives all these warnings about being mindful and good stewards of the things that God's given us, and to be generous, but be careful who you give to, right? And then here it encourages us to give the first fruits of the things that we receive in the world. So a lot of times this is referred to as like a tithe. And it says that when you give that to the church, one, it should go to support um, the prophet or the teachers, right? Especially if there's a full-time prophet or full-time teacher, um, it should go to help support their livelihood, again, to continue on the ministry, not to get rich. Um, and then it says, if you don't have a prophet there, or if you don't have a pastor there, uh, then you should give it to the poor. So it's this idea that we should always be in a continual state of giving. And what this is pleading us for us to do is be thoughtful and mindful about who we give to and how we give. Chapter 14, Christian Assembly on the Lord's Day. But every Lord's Day, gather yourselves together and break bread and give thanksgiving after having confessed your sins, that your sacrifice may be pure. But let no one that is at variance with his fellow come together with you until they be reconciled, that your sacrifice may not be profane. For this is that which was spoken by the Lord, and every place and time offered to me a pure sacrifice. For I am a great king, says the Lord, and my name is wonderful among the nations. So this is describing um, the weekly celebration, um, basically going to church. What going to church was like when the Didache was written, the Christian assembly. And it describes some common, common practices of the early church, and we kind of see some similarities in this today. So it says that they gather on Sunday, and they'd celebrate the Lord's Supper. Now, at River Rock, we celebrate every other week. So we don't do it every day or every week like we see here in Didache, um, but we do it every other week. It describes prayer as being present every week and confession of sin being present every week. And we do many of these things at River Rock. We have a confession of sin before our prayer time. Um, We say several prayers throughout the service. Um, One of the things that this emphasizes, though, is an emphasis on unity and making peace. It's saying if you're coming into the Lord's to the Lord's Day, if you're coming to church on a Sunday and you're offering up your prayers, you're partaking in communion, you're doing all this stuff, but you have strife between you and other people in the church, one of the main priorities has to be reconciling that strife. And it places such a heavy emphasis on this because we are called to be the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. It doesn't matter if we're just going through all the motions if the body of Christ and the bride of Christ is not healthy and working together. 
This doesn't mean we should totally abandon it if we have strife amongst one another, but that we should fight for peace and unity within the body. Chapter 15, so bishops and deacons, Christian reproof. Therefore, appoint for yourselves bishops and deacons worthy of the Lord, men meek and not lovers of money, 1 Timothy 3, 4, and truthful and proven, for they also render to you the service of prophets and teachers. Despise them not, therefore, for they are your honored ones, together with the prophets and the teachers, and reprove one another, not in anger, but in peace, as you have it in the gospel, Matthew 18, 15-17. But to everyone that acts amiss against another, let no one speak, nor let him hear anything from you until he repents. For your prayers and alms and all your deeds so do, as you have it in the gospel of our Lord. So here it's talking about the standing governing body within the church, the standing people who do the teachings, right? It's went through and it's talked about the uh, prophets and the teachers and the apostles, people who are traveling around and doing stuff. But it says, therefore appoint for yourselves bishops and deacons, worthy Lord, men, meek, and not lovers of money. And then it references 1 Timothy 3, 4. Um, now, here it says bishops and deacons. The word for bishop here is presbyter. So some tra- traditions use this to mean to uh, pastor or elder, and some just call them presbyters. But it seems like there's little distinction in the Didache and in many other early church writings between um, you know, what some people would call a bishop and then a pastor and then a deacon. A lot of times in the later history of the church, just a few hundred years after this, you see that now there's kind of this third order of ministry. There's the bishops who kind of oversee a bunch of churches, the the priest or the presbyter, and then you have the deacons. What we see here in, in the Didache is that there doesn't seem to be that distinction between a bishop and an elder. It seems like there's just the elders in the church and the deacons in the church, the presbyters and the deacons. Chapter 16 Watchfulness, the coming of the Lord. And this talks about us eagerly anticipating the second coming of Christ and also warning against being led astray. It says, watch for your life's sake. Let not your lamps be quenched, nor your loins unloosed, but be ready. For you know not the hour in which our Lord comes. Matthew 24, 42. But often shall you come together, seeking the things which are befitting to your souls. For the whole time of your faith will not profit you, if you be not made perfect in the last time. For in the last days, false prophets and corruptors shall be multiplied, and the sheep shall be turned into wolves, and love shall be turned into hate. Matthew 24, 11 through 12. But when lawlessness increases, they shall hate and persecute and betray one another. Matthew 24, 10. Then shall appear the world deceiver as the Son of God, and shall do signs and wonders, and the earth shall be delivered into his hands, and he shall do iniquities, things which have never, never yet come to pass since the beginning. Then shall the creation of men come into the fire of trial, and many shall be made to stumble and shall perish. But they that endure in their faith shall be saved from under the curse itself. And then shall appear the signs of the truth, first the sign of an outspreading in heaven, then the sign of the sound of the trumpet, and the third, the resurrection of the dead. Yet not of all, but as it is said, the Lord shall come and all his saints with him. Then shall the world see the Lord coming upon the clouds of heaven. And I love how the Didache ends, because in many ways it's a very practical document, just to give early Christians instruction on, you know, how to be generous and hospitable, how to, you know, place governing bodies in your church, how to do things that churches do. And then it ends with this glorious hope, this warning against being led astray in the last days, but this ever constant eager anticipation of the Lord's second coming when he'll return in his glory. And this is such a good reminder for us as a church, because 
sometimes we can get so bogged down with the day-to-day, right? Just getting from one workday to the next, getting till the weekend, and then, you know, just trying to make one Sunday better than maybe the last Sunday or something. And we think, you know, that's the sum of our hope when it's not, right? The hope that we eagerly await every day is being in the presence of Christ. Um, and we as a, that should be something present in our life as a church as well, where we're always pointing to the reality that Christ is coming again and he's coming again soon. I hope that going through the Didache has maybe answered some of your questions about what the early church believed, how they understood some of these passages. And as we reflect on this and as we read the scriptures and, and we spend time in prayer, I, I pray that God would continue to lead me, lead all of us, and lead his church into a, more, a fuller knowledge of who he is, a deeper love for him, and living that love out in the way that we serve others. Thank you.